Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mari. Tonight we have a great show. We are actually in Annapolis, Maryland, and we are at a wonderful conference with the Poneman Institute. And I met two fabulous men, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about them. The first one is Scott Ernst. Scott provides advisory and advocacy services related to technology, media, data security, and privacy risks. In addition, Scott's broad PNC background provides him with a valuable understanding of numerous risks and coverages, including management liability, commercial property, casualty, and various others. In his current role right now, Scott's work increasingly entails technology and media, intellectual property protection, the effective protection of intangible assets, and the rapidly emerging issues of security and privacy. Scott Ernst is Senior Vice President of Hilb, Rogel, and Hobbs. He's also a member of the Tech Media Advisory Group and the Security and Privacy Advisory Group. We're also sitting here with another gentleman who is also Senior Vice President with Hilb, Robel, and Hobbs, and his name is Paul Perret. Paul provides consultative advice to those companies looking to navigate new media, tech, E&O, and privacy exposures. Paul has held a number of senior insurer positions, including most recently with CNA and Miscellaneous Professional Liability Division, where he helped lead the team tasked with growing the CNA media and technology E&O products. Before that, he was technology and media product manager for National Union AIG, where he developed and managed media and network security products for the professional liability division. Prior to that, he managed the New York regional office for AIG eBusiness Risk Solutions. And he's done many more things. Both of these guys have a a very long resume, but we're going to get started. Both of these senior vice presidents, thank you for taking time out of lunch to join me. It's great to be here. Yes, thanks. Okay, so let's get started. What exactly do you guys do? (laughs) Uh, It's a good question. Um, At the end of the day, uh, we are risk consultants and advisors and insurance brokers to our clients. It's our job to help businesses, primarily Paul and I focus on media technology and and now across all industries on the security and privacy front. And we help our clients analyze their exposures, get a better understanding of exactly what risks they face, and then help them make decisions about how to either mitigate those those exposures, uh, stop doing the things that might lead to those exposures, or also 
alternative is to transfer those exposures through an insurance policy? Well, you know, we hear every day about security breaches, and we've had since 2005 over 220 million records that have been accessed or acquired by unauthorized persons. So it's really a huge issue. Now, we're sitting here in, in Annapolis, Maryland, but our show is in California, in Orange County, where there's lots of businesses going by, and we're right on the campus where there's security breaches there. Uh, what about the different roles that come into play when there is a security breach? I just wanted to go back to what you said about being in California. California is obviously in the cutting edge of privacy with their own privacy office and really being at the forefront of all the statutes. I think they have over 20 statutes dealing with privacy. And frankly, if it weren't for California, we probably would not know about 75% of the breaches that we've heard about in the past year. So kudos to California. Yes. They're doing such a great job of actually getting the word out and taking it seriously enough to have a privacy office. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, they just changed the statute, the notification statute in uh, January to now include health-related information. Yes, yes, we did. I mean, all of this is great stuff. So, and, and it also applies to government besides being, you know, commercial. I mean, any even if a government entity has a security breach, they have to notify. So that's how we hear about the, you know, University of California, and we hear about all of the different breaches. But, Absolutely. okay, so Paul, so tell us, um, what are the different roles? And, and thank you for the kudos to California. <laughs> Come and visit. We, we will uh, enjoy that. Well, the different roles. Well, one of the problems you're faced with is there's no sort of preparation. If you go into war, you usually have some exercises in advance. When you're dealing with a breach, unfortunately, most companies don't even have an incident response team in place, let alone having that incident response team meeting and discussing how to deal with a, an incident. And moreover, there's no practice. So what you end up having is you have the legal department working with marketing department, working with PR department, working with risk management department, and they get into the room and say, now what do we do? And the problem is there's no real lead there. So then they engage their legal counsel and say, well, what should we do from a legal perspective? Do we need to notify? Do we need to um, do certain things with our, with our uh, partners and our employees? So the problem you're faced with is that there's no coordination. So what ends up happening is that they get an outside attorney to come in, they raise their hands up and say, do it for us, and they spend a, a tremendous amount of money on that outside counsel, and in addition, they're spending a lot of money on the vendor services, the credit monitoring and the call center and all the things that you need to do to set up uh, a proper response and they're paying much more than the market rate because they just you know feel that they need to outsource it all so how did the different functional groups work together when you helped them scott well i, I think that uh, what we're preaching to our clients is that um, you have to look at a potential breach as a when rather than an if scenario that uh, for the reasons paul mentioned you can't wait to have the storm to to figure out how you're going to respond so our clients are putting together um, a first response team that includes both the financial side, the legal side, the customer service side, um, and, and even the investor relations side, so that everybody knows that, God forbid, should one of these events happen, that what each person's role is going to be um, and what are the first steps they're going to take. So you want to open up communication between, uh, I left out IT and I apologize, uh, but you want to open up communication between these functional areas and have at least the beginnings of a game plan of the first steps that you're going to take so that, so that you're not caught flat-footed should you have a breach. So what are the first steps that people should take, Paul? What, what if you find out about a big security breach? What do you do? Well, the first step is to actually look at what data uh, you are talking about. Because, for example, if it's a lost laptop, what sort of information is on that laptop? Because you need to figure out if it's a malicious act versus negligence, uh, an innocent or inadvertent disclosure versus something that's uh, Lost versus stolen. Well, the reason yeah. why is you need yeah. to put a stop to it. Right. I mean, frankly, you need, to, you need to figure out what it is in order to plug the hole. You need to bring in the, the uh, legal authorities at the right time. You need to bring in outside counsel, inside counsel at the right time because 
very time sensitive issues unfold within literally hours of being notified of a breach. And that, frankly, is one of the first issues is how do you get notified? Who gets notified? And how does it trickle down to the organizational uh, level? So I guess to answer your question, the first issue is what data are you referring to and how do you plug that hole? Once you do that, which is obviously a very important issue, uh, then you, you go to the next steps. Who do you need to notify? Do you need to notify vendors, employees? Um, how do you go about the notification letter, for example? Because if you don't draft an, a properly worded notification letter, you're going to alienate your clients or your customers. You may be more prone to a, a lawsuit than if you handle it another way. And what we've looked at, we've looked at notification letters, and they really do vary, and some are more inflammatory than others. And so, you know, those are the initial issues you literally have to do within a few days of, of the breach. And there's obviously a lot of things that you need to do as time goes on as well. But those, those are the initial issues. And Scott, so I would imagine it's very different for a very small company versus a very large company, mm -hmm. especially with regard to the resources they have. So help us understand how do you help small versus large companies and how is it different? Right. It is very different. There's some trade-offs. I mean, certainly a larger company has a lot more resource. Um, they also have a lot more complexity to their organization. So uh, along the functional lines that we were talking before, you may have numerous uh, different departments that may have either a stake in the event or, or some input into how it either gets communicated or, or dealt with. So um, large organizations, you certainly have more resource, but you also have much more complexity and all the more reason to get your ducks in a row earlier on. Smaller organizations, um, there's the exact uh, alternative, is, which is you may have uh, fewer people involved because they're wearing multiple hats and serving m different roles. So your, your coordination may be easier by, uh, for that reason. However, your resources are, are not as deep. So it's more important that you identify uh, who your resources, both internally and externally, to make sure that you have the right the right expertise on your team. So that may mean identifying the law firm that is going to help you with the notification process and 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 navigating the regulatory front up front. Um, it also might mean that that's sort of where we come into play, whereas uh, a large organization may feel very comfortable with retaining the financial exposure related to a breach themselves because they feel that they have an, uh, a handle on what, what that might mean to them. A smaller organization uh, both doesn't have the resources to manage the process, um, so they, they are more inclined to need the additional support of outside service providers. That can run into expense. And then also the, the possible liability that could be involved with that is much more difficult for them to retain themselves. So I think that the, the opportunity Stay to private. transfer that Good risk uh, becomes much more... The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. ...major drivers of a data security breach and privacy risk. There's certainly regulatory reasons. I won't mention the name, but there was a large automobile manufacturer doing business in Spain that unfortunately had a mishap with some data, and it wasn't even them. It was a vendor that they used. Mm. Um, they were hit with a $250,000 fine by the government of Spain. Now, if the same thing happened in the U.S., there would be no fine. So, you know, there are certain issues that you need to be uh, addressing from a regulatory perspective in the U.S., you do get hit. I mean, uh, obviously, everybody's now aware of HIPAA. Uh, they're finally starting to enforce HIPAA, so you do get the potential of fines and penalties with regards to that as well. Everybody knows also about Choice Point getting hit with a significant fine by the FTC, but that's more rare. But that is obviously one of the major drivers. Also, the reputational harm that you get when you get a uh, breach incident that's in the papers, um, that has a much more nebulous sort of um, impact, but it is a very real impact, and it's something that, you know, can can devastate your stock price down the road, as well as, you know, faith in your company, and there have been studies that have shown that if you do get hit once, there's a drop-off rate of a certain percentage, but if you get hit twice, that drop-off rate goes up to 80% in some customer segments. 
Um, and the flip side is also important. You can really gain a foothold against your competitors if you're deemed to be proactive from a privacy perspective. So, you now you mentioned It's a value choice. added, right? Exactly, I just mentioned ChoicePoint. That's a great example of a company that took a bad incident uh, and really flipped it on its head and was so proactive and employed so many best practices. Now they're, they're roaring along. I mean, they're highly profitable, stocks doing well. So there's a lot of pluses uh, to, to looking at your data security and, and uh, privacy risk in a proactive way. Let me ask you, Scott. So insurance, people get insurance for so many things. Mm -hmm. We're, I mean, that is a way that we protect ourselves, whether you get health insurance or other kinds of business insurance. Tell us about the kind of insurance that you're talking about with security breach, what really, what does it all entail? It's funny, I, I, I often say that um, I know what homeowners is, I know what auto is, when somebody throws those words out, I know it, it seems in our industry everybody wants to throw out the word cyber risk, and I don't have the faintest idea what that word means. <laughs> so really the, the devil is in the details in these policies, and they all have to be looked at um, very closely individually. You, you can't make any assumptions about what these policies do. I have another saying I like to use, which is when you buy insurance, they tend to call it a policy. But if you have a claim, they call it a contract. And uh, you'll right. never hear the word policy again. So there, there's a variety of different policies that are out there. Um, some are intended for the actual owners of the data. If you are a healthcare organization or you're a financial institution or you're a retailer, um, you are a manager of significant amount of critical information. There are policies that uh, basically act as a funding mechanism to cover the the response to a breach. So that can be everything from the forensic works to identify, as Paul said, to identify what the actual breach was, the notification costs, the cost of setting up a call center so your customers can can call in and find out you know, if they've been impacted and, and to have a customer service response, and also credit monitoring. Those are all what we would sort of call first-party expenses. Those are the expenses that the company that had the breach themselves are going to incur, and an insurance policy funds those those expenses. Then there's also the liability section, whereas you have... If there's a bunch of victims of identity theft, they right. come back. You have a regulatory response. Regulators come in, and, and there's a lot of expense in just doing the diligence to respond right. to a, to a regulatory... Federal Trade Commission. Right. Yeah. And and then civil liability is the you know is the, the elephant in the room that everybody's mm -hmm. concerned about. If somebody is able to, the plaintiff's bar is able to, to mount a uh, class action against right. you, that can be significant liability. So the policy, so the the owners of the data, I would say the managers of the data, those there are those policies. Now one Let of the let me stop you for sure. just a second. People think that they're the owners of their own data. And in our country, I think we need to clarify that. The owners of the data, your data that's sitting in someone else's database mm -hmm. becomes their data, at least in this country. Right. What's different in Europe, but I think that's important because people, most consumers don't know that. They think, that's my data. Right. They're just holding it, but that's not the way it's looked at. So I just wanted to clarify no, that that's for a good people point. who are driving by. Excellent point. Um, so the policy that I described is for the, the, those companies that, that hold that data. Now, one of the responses that those companies have is they look to their own technology service providers to indemnify them. Basic logic being, if you're going to be managing that data that I hold in my organization in any way, shape, or form, I want you to put skin in the game, so I'm going to ask you to indemnify me so that if, if as a result of some negligence on your part, right. I incur a breach, that you're indemnifying me. Right. So there, then then we're writing... That's if you're outsourcing stuff, if, right. you're a, if you're a smaller company. If you're a big company, you wouldn't have that ability well, to do that. Well, you, you, Unless they do outsource, I guess. Yeah, yeah and th there's, I mean, for, I mean, we'll, I'll give you an example is that we, we insure an airline, and an airline has their ticketing system is entirely outsourced. Right. So... Um, now, the, the vendor that's providing that service is providing that indemnification. They also have to protect themselves, so they're, they're also they policy. They insurance, too. Right, because they're being, more and more, the, the service provider is seeing um, their client really push indemnifications down to them. So they need to have an insurance policy or, or some risk management plan to respond to that responsibility. Right. So that, those are the those are the in the broad in the broadest sense. Those are the sort of the, the two buckets of, of of coverage. I would say. Let's let's kind of step back a minute. In some of your literature, you refer to the four major drivers of a healthcare privacy storm. Could you explain what those are? Because there's probably a lot more than four, but we've honed in on some 
changes that have been occurring recently sort of create a privacy storm right now in the healthcare space. One of which is uh, driven by regulatory. Again, going back to the earlier uh, question, the CMS security rule audits being done, those are HIPAA-related. Now, uh, as of the first of the year, they've been done on a sort of surprise level where they're getting complaints. They're going straight to the hospital doing a security rule audit. That's new. I mean, HIPAA really hasn't been aggressively enforced recently, uh, until recently. In addition to that, you're, you're looking at it from a perspective that there are more breaches and there is more of an expectation on the part of uh, folks who are potential jurors to say, well, they better uh, take better precautions here because look how many breaches I've been reading about, so why aren't they investing more money, time, effort in, in fixing this? And there's a uh, recent case uh, coming out of New York Appellate Court where basically the allegation was uh, there was a negligent disclosure of uh, information, and despite that negligent in, uh, disclosure of um, healthcare information, uh, and again, I want to emphasize the word negligence because the jury came back with a verdict of punitive damages. And mm. although that wasn't... That's strange, yeah. yeah you negligence, know, yeah. Exactly. It's got to be gross negligence. <clears throat> Absolutely. So what we're seeing is a convergence right now. You're taking all of those factors together. Uh, you look also at the fact that um, there is much more of a, um aggressive tendency on the part of... Um, uh, companies to now go forward with the electronics medical records initiative um, that they're basically trying to, um, you know, take advantage of the fact that there is the excess capacity that's out there. So let's create this uh, electronic medical records initiative dossier. I mean, there's a lot of them that are out there. President Bush uh, has really been pushing that. In addition, you have e-discovery as being a factor. Um, whereby you have uh, now an obligation to exchange data early on in the litigation proce process, in, in federal court at least. Um, so there's a lot of more of an uh, incentive to hold on to that information because it's much cheaper to do so. So those are various factors, but one of the things that really is, is also driving this is the ID theft that's taking place in the medical context. You're getting a lot of immigrants that are now paying to get the uh, medical ID in order to get health care that they're not able to get otherwise. Right. So now you're forced to deal with a, a, a double-edged sword. Not only do you have somebody being victimized in terms of their medical ID information being used by someone else, now when they go to the hospital or go to, uh, let's say, a, a clinician that they haven't seen in a long time and they pull up their records, they're going to might be treating them for diabetes when they don't have diabetes, but the person that stole the record does. Right. So it, there are a lot of issues that have only recently, and now, as I mentioned earlier, California includes in a notification law. Massachusetts just followed suit in February, so now you have two states that are going to include that as part of the notification laws. So all of these factors brought together sort of create a perfect storm for the healthcare industry. So we're, we're finding that it really resonates. And also you've, you've heard of some high-profile breaches recently in the healthcare space. You know, when you're talking about the healthcare, Paul and Scott, the upsetting thing is that credit monitoring isn't going to do a darn thing about healthcare, medical identity theft. So what are some of the things that you're going to be able to do for companies that are in the medical industry that have that kind of information because credit monitoring isn't going to help to prevent any kind of identity theft of medical identity theft. There are some progressive ways that you can... Oh, now we're bangers. a pop. I just want to say Paul's answering, not <laughs> Scott. You did a switch, okay? No, I apologize. No, that's uh, okay. The, the, you just the, grab the microphone. That's all right. That's my stop. There's, there's something that's interesting. You're right. Traditionally, credit monitoring just looks at the credit bureaus and, you know, figure out whether or not there's somebody that, based on a credit report, has stolen your identity. Right. But there's much more that you can get with the right vendors that is much more proactive. So it can potentially trace medical information as well and can also look to, you know, DMV and other agencies to see if a license change was made in your name with your identity. So it's getting to be a much more expansive process, you know, searching out. But the key is you have to get the right vendor and you have to get the right 
program in place. And but I'm thinking for insurance, what you're going to cover them for, you know, if, if you have a data breach of, um, let's say, a thousand, well, just think about the TriWest data mm -hmm. breach, right? Mm -hmm. And the social security numbers were, were taken from, uh, you know, I mean, obviously those those computers had social security numbers, et cetera. So identity theft, yes, the, the credit monitoring, but I'm wondering, like, what can you do for consumers for for concern about medical identity theft? I mean, what do you what do you propose? Talking about proactive prior. Yeah, to the is breach? there? No, no, no. I'm saying after there's a breach and medical information is stolen, what can you do to prevent medical identity theft? Is there anything out there that you know of? Because I really don't know too much of. Like I what said, the credit monitoring. The credit monitoring can be expansive, so it can include triggers that are outside of the normal financial data space. Okay. Okay. Um, I, I know that you could probably in inform everybody to tell their health carrier, you know, uh, which most companies are, you know, medical companies aren't doing, but that could be part of the letter is saying mm -hmm. notify your health carrier and get a new number. Right. You know, get a new health care number because it's no longer your social security well, that's one number. that's the goals also. Right. The, having the EMR initiative is to have it so that you can notify and, you know, near real time, you're able to shoot out to all the health care providers that service you information with regards to whether or not there has been a breach. So that's one of the, you know, I don't... One of the ways you can help the, the exactly. consumer, right. I don't foresee that happening in the near term, but that's one of the long-term goals of having this implemented is to be able to reach out and touch your actual healthcare providers. Let me introduce you again. We're sitting here with uh, Scott Ernst and Paul Perret, and they are both senior vice presidents with Hilb, Rogel, and Hobbs. And they, have, uh, they are both also very involved in the Security and Privacy Advisory Group and the Tech Media Advisory Group. What are those two? Tell me about these two groups anyway. Well, the, the Tech Media Group, um, our focus there is on... Um, organizations that are either providing uh, technology services, media services, or have technology or media-rich business models. Um, and there's been a, a slight convergence between the tech side and the media side, so it, we kind of look at the whole thing as one big picture. Um, when you're talking about media, are you talking about um, media like... Uh uh, what are you talking about? Like iPods and it could be other a, it's content, whatever form that content could okay. take. So it could be it could be print, it could be images, it could be music, um, it could be some kind of artistic expression. Anything okay. anything that that um, is, is distributed to the public, um, and there are issues of copyright, there are issues of of uh, infringement or or libel, slander issues, those are the kind of things. Okay, that, and intellectual that, property stuff. Exactly, okay. mm -hmm. exactly. Mm -hmm. And the security and the, pri the security and privacy space really cuts across all industries, whereas media and tech, uh, we, we find ourselves, you know, focused in entertainment and, um, you know, West Coast media um, and some of the, the, the morphing of, of old line media publishing and so forth. Um, and in technology, obviously, we're dealing primarily with technology service providers and technology product providers, where on the security and privacy space, that cuts across all industries. Right. You know, that that um, it doesn't, you know, you could be DSW shoes right. or you could be... Mom and pop store. Right. Um, <laughs> Whoever has a computer right, with all their if, customer information on it. Right. And it, it doesn't even have to be customer information. It could just be your employees' information. Right. Maybe you're managing your, your own health care program internally. And, you know, as a result of that, I mean, I, I remember one of the first breaches was uh, um, Time Warner. Just right. uh, one particular tape didn't make it to Iron Mountain. You know, right. fell off the truck. Right, and right. Uh, that's a breach. That's a breach. Exactly. So, um, so we feel that this area of risk management is evolving so quickly that you really can't give it a part-time focus. You can't right. be, you know, writing uh, construction and and then do tech and media and security in your part-time. Right. You, yeah. You're either totally invested in this or you're missing something. Even the policies, we put together cutting-edge policies, and there's not a single policy that we take off the shelf from a carrier that we don't manuscript heavily before it's really suitable for a client. But the market is moving so quickly that that something that we completely manuscript now, 12 months from now when we go to renew that same policy, we start from from step one all over again because the 
the insurance industry is trying to respond to these new exposures and the policy wording is changing so quickly um, that you really have to be very vigilant in, in making sure that these policies really present a, a, a risk transfer and value to the client. I'm thinking about these small companies, Paul, and they may have a lot of data on people or on whether they're employees or whether they're customers and they may be keeping that. Is it even affordable for small companies? I mean, I know if they get hit, they get hit hard. I guess they'll have to file bankruptcy. But, you know, how, what do we do? There's so many small companies. I think, what is it, 80% of all companies in the United States are, are really considered small to medium mm -hmm. companies. Mm -hmm. So how do, how do we deal with them? Well, small companies certainly are the engine that drives our country's prosperity or has been traditionally over the years. And the advice we would give uh, is just based on the fact that small companies even have had incidents. I mean, uh, just companies that have had minimal revenue, um, who really had no clue as to why they were hit or why they were uh, struck, uh, they, they have been hit. Now, don't want to be uh, you know, sounding too much of an alarmist. Uh, you have to look at the risk-benefit. You, you need to look at also your revenue uh, and whether or not it makes sense. Sometimes you retain risk. Sometimes you make a deliberate choice. Say, Listen, I don't want to transfer this risk. I want to take it on my own. Um, but if, if they're going to do that, then they should look at a couple of things. And the FTC is really proactive in, in helping out companies with regards to privacy. Uh, and the first and foremost is what data do you have and where does it reside? And, and they, do you need to keep the data that you... Ah, you stole you, my punchline. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> or should you even collect that data? Yeah. Do you need it? Because yeah. a lot of times uh, we're finding that companies are taking advantage of the cheap bandwidth that exists right. and the data capabilities um, that really weren't around even a couple of years ago. They're taking advantage of that and making a determination that it's, it's okay to collect all this data and maybe someday I'll be able to use it. Well, unless you actually figure out what you're going to use for it today, it's probably not a good idea to keep it because the risk is more towards a disclosure and adverse consequence than it is to a positive in terms of marketing benefit. So, you know, those are the initial things I would advocate going uh, and, and understanding a little bit more about what data you have, where it resides, why you're keeping it. Um, you know, look to issues like, for example, is it accurate? Can you trim whatever you don't need? And most importantly, is it secure? And those type of issues, you know, we could talk for an hour about the security issues, but, you know, that, those are sort of things that you may want to use a managed service provider to help you with. Um, and basically, if you're too small, let's say, to have an IT person full-time, there are companies that service smaller companies, uh, and they, they focus on an industry sector, for example, and you could use one of them. They're MSPs, they're called. There's an organization, MSP Alliance, uh, that uh, can you instead could you tell us what uh, some of these yeah what these managed these service provider okay, I apologize yeah. that's okay I mean even when we say FTC I know what you're talking about but I forget that people driving by or listening on the internet maybe don't know the FTC is the Federal Trade Commission and MSP you know. yeah okay managed service providers basically are your outsourced IT okay. and so even if you can't afford to have full-time person it might be a good idea to use someone on a part-time basis uh, even if you're a small company. Let me ask you, Scott, when we were just talking a few minutes about having all these different vendors, do the policies, uh, uh, do you always recommend that the um, policies that you write for the bigger companies, that, that the vendors also have, uh, if you're going to try ask for indemnification, that they also have insurance? There's a couple different answers. First, without a doubt, um, the, the first line of defense is, is the contracts that you have with your service providers or vendors. And you certainly want to have exercise best practices and define what their roles and responsibilities are and certainly the indemnifications that should go with that. Mm -hmm. um, part of that also is to, to define what insurance you expect that they will have in place to, to, to respond to those things. Certainly, if it's one thing if you have such a large outside vendor that you feel comfortable that their indemnification is going to be backed up by their balance sheet, that's one thing. Smaller organizations, um, you might want to make sure that there's an insurance policy there that's going to fund and back up that indemnification. Mm -hmm. What we're finding more now is that uh, clients 
has sort of gone through that first round of getting the indemnifications, but they found that that really is not giving them the sense of comfort that they were seeking. And now um, we're being asked to develop a vendor management programs where mm-hmm. um, the, the larger company themselves is setting up the, the facility for their smaller vendors to get insured so that they have, they have some transparency into what is actually being backed up by that insurance policy. And, and the next layer really is that you can transfer and you can cover your indemnity, but you're still going to have the responsibility to the regulators and to your, your, your customers and so forth. So it is an extremely important part of a, an effective solution to take into consider, consideration all those applications or databases that are going to be managed by third parties. And to the degree that you can um, define those for an underwriter, um, include those in your in your insurance program so that God forbid that the the breach takes place while the data resides at some third party service provider that you 've still triggered coverage under your own policy and it would respond as if you had the breach um, you know in, in your own system and that also goes I mean, we keep on talking about systems but it doesn 't have to be a, a data um, it doesn't have to be a technology loss. It could be a laptop left in a car. Yeah, it could be yeah. a laptop left in, you know, that didn't make it through security check at the airport. Or it could be somebody that's just, uh, I heard a, one of my clients called me and said that they had a truck that was supposed to be destroying um, computer printouts. Unfortunately, the computer printout ended up all over the highway. Right. Uh, and, you know, in California, I, I sit as an advisor to the Office of Privacy Protection, and our data breach law basically says that uh, if you have computerized information that has not been encrypted, then you must notify, right, if it's been acquired by uh, acquired by an unauthorized person. Mm-hmm. Well, that computerized information can be printed out. Just like you're saying, so that is subject to the data breach. But that leads me, Paul, to the next question is, um, if, if you're uh, getting insurance, does the carrier want you to encrypt the data? They haven't gone that far just yet. Uh, and I, I, you, know, you can encrypt at rest or in transit, but it, it's interesting to note that um, there is a definite change in perspective and from the carriers in the past, I would say six months, whereby they're much more proactive and making specific recommendations, not as to what vendor you should use, what software you should use, but, but in general terms um, that you should have some policies in place and, and to use certain ways of uh, maintaining the security of data. And that's only been in the past six months and have been much more proactive in that. Um, but they haven't come back and said it needs to be encrypted because, frankly, encryption, when you drill down, may appear at first uh, blush as being a panacea and it's going to cure all your problems. But there's a lot of issues within encryption. For example, if you're encrypting data and you're putting the key in the same folder where the data is located, <laughs> yeah, right. which happens very commonly, uh, you know, so who cares if it's encrypted, right? <laughs> right. Uh, number two, you know, within the gaps of the data stream, which aren't encrypted, malicious code could be inserted, and that malicious code can in turn uh, wreak havoc on your on your uh, system and may steal other data. So you have. And to also, be if you have an unscrupulous employee who has the key, absolutely. That, you know, that's one of the things that we, I remember when we were talking about our data security breach law. We said, well, that's the hole. You know, we wanted to have a carrot mm-hmm. and a stick, and the carrot was if you encrypt. You don't have to notify. If you don't encrypt, you have to notify. So that was it. But then we said, well, wait a minute. We wanted to go back and say, but if it's someone who has a key or one of the issues like you were talking about, the negligence of the company, then even if it's encrypted, you really should notify because that means that somebody did get access, mm-hmm. did get, was able to acquire it. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. You're in, your, you're in the best possible light if you've encrypted what data you've lost because most of the statutes out there are not going to be impacted if you have encrypted right. data. And whole disk encryption is probably the best route to take. Um, it's usually the safest, but it's costly. You know, yes. A lot of, lot of uh, large organizations have taken that route, but it's cost a tremendous amount of money. may not make sense for a smaller company. You might use an, uh, you know, Dell has some products that they've teamed up with software vendors to provide um, encryption on laptops. But I, 
I can tell you one thing, unless it's done right, so it's more about the training and the personnel, uh, any technology solution is not going to be adequate. You really have to have the personnel to implement them. So, Scott, tell us, how can be companies best prepare, whether they're, I guess, they'll be different between a large and a small company, but how can they do that? Right. To begin with, I think they need to understand uh, exactly what data they have in their systems and where it resides. So the, the first, the first uh, issue is to one of identification. Um, secondly, um, I think that they need to make sure that their, their security is... Um, completely up to par and that they're following best practices um, as currently defined and keeping up on whatever those best practices are to do everything they possibly can to um, to protect the data through encryption, through firewalls. Uh, there there's, seems to be new new software coming out that, in, that embeds the security right into the application itself. Um, so whatever, the, whatever they possibly can do to protect uh, and prevent a breach, uh, they should do that. And that also extends over to the, the policy, the privacy policy of uh, setting in place uh, a culture that, that um, keeps privacy at the forefront of all their employees' thinking, that uh, continuous training and education um, so that um, there is a, a, uh, a general, as I said, culture of protection of data. And then um, once you, you've got your, your uh, defensive game plan all set up, I think that you, then you have to sort of set that aside and say, okay, now let's assume that uh, it happened yesterday. And what were the thing? What are the things that we need to do? And you need to set up that that first response plan of knowing who are the critical stakeholders within the organization or outside the organization that are going to need to be involved. What expertise you have internally, or what expertise you need to seek externally, so that um, God forbid that a breach does happen, that you're you're now going through a response game plan rather than. Uh, dealing in an environment of, of a great deal of panic and, and uh, right. chaos. Um, and then and, and they should look at how they're going to fund these things that uh, you don't you don't want to uh, be you know have a quarter or a year uh, be impacted by by one of these events. So you need yeah, to you consider can't do funding. business if you're if you're totally right. working in the breach, right? Well and that's one of the things that you know I, I'm constantly telling my clients is that when it, when they think about insurance they think about well okay you're going to pay a claim, and that's true, but a, a lot of the value that comes out of these type of insurance policies is to be able to to outsource or to uh, delegate the, res the response and the management of the response. Right. You don't want your entire management team to become so wholly focused on managing a response to a breach that they forget about doing the business that they're there to do. Right. So um, to get all those ducks in a row so that God forbid and you hope that you never have to you know, right. pull the trigger, but that if, if it does happen, you're prepared. Okay. So when you're talking about being prepared, Paul, if you have um, an insurance, I think that you were talking about that you create insurance policies or, or the wording that fits the needs of that particular organization, right? Mm -hmm. So is that when you create the, the response uh, plan when you're doing the insurance policy? Is that part of it? Is it all coordinated? We don't create an, a response plan for a client. What we do is we work with them to look at their exposures, where they have potential problems, and try to give them you know, what we consider to be model templates, but we're not particularly a vendor focused on giving them uh, security advice. We work with a lot of vendors. We work with a lot of legal counsel. We work with all the folks that do that on a daily basis. We look at it from more of a macro perspective, you know, what they should do uh, to set up a, a risk management plan, work internally with the folks that are charged with doing that, and then whatever they don't want to take on, we, we help them transfer that risk and, and give it to a carrier. With regards to the carrier, the carrier is the one that develops the product or the policy. We manuscript, you know, we try to work with them to, to conform it to the needs of the client. Right. So we're very careful about doing that. Scott just mentioned, you know, God forbid that you do have a breach. Well, the way it's looking is odds are you will have a breach. I mean, right. Poneman Institute, and we're here at a uh, the Rim Renaissance uh, Poneman Institute event, and, you know, one of the um, surveys they did and just looked at it, 
Um, there was 827 participants, and they were all privacy professionals or security professionals um, and all senior folks. And basically 63% of them that reported multiple occurrences of breach require notification. So it wasn't just one. It was multiple instances. Yeah, and that was just breached. in one year, right? And that was just in one year. And, and the security protocols have been got, getting better over the years. So what you're seeing is you have more of a of a exposure uh, cropping up. So it's just a, a matter of time. That's why, you know, setting this in motion is just a good best practice to figure out what to do in advance. Right. So is there a checklist of what a, a, a for example, the carrier wants you to do before they'll insure you? Well, there's an assessment process and right. an application and sometimes uh, they have internal staff actually review your security protocols and your privacy policies and other times uh, they use an external vendor to do that um, and sometimes some carriers don't do either and just use an underwriter to uh, look at an application and an assessment and it really does vary or vary excuse me uh, by carrier in terms of how down they drill the uh, in terms of the questions. It also depends on the size of the company, the limits, and a lot of other factors. Um, but they do try to get a handle on that. So, Scott, tell us, if the companies who are driving by right now, what should they be looking for in a carrier, in an insurance carrier, to make sure that they're protected? I mean, there's all sorts of insurance you can get. Right, right. Well, I would say the first thing is that um, because this is as relatively a, a new exposure both in the the business community as well as with the insurance companies that there's not a deep pool of expertise out there um, both at the insurance broker or agent level um, or at the insurance underwriter level so the, the first thing is I would say you know either talk with your peers um, talk with other uh, service providers or advisors and try to find um, someone you can turn to broker, agents, consultants that um, really has some deep expertise in this area to help you structure a program that's really going to be meaningful for you. Um, then the the other thing is to, to spend the time, you know, there's a lot of insurance companies out there, but but there's only one of your company. And that should be the focus initially. Focus on the company. What what are the specifics of the way that you manage data? How how information flows through your organization do you have a bunch of consultants running around with laptops or is everything pretty much in your office and look hard at the way you know information moves through your organization and then go out to the there go out to the insurance industry Lloyd's of London AIGs there there's there's a growing number of insurance companies that are writing these types of policies um, but when you so do you guys work with various companies and you look for the company that meets the needs of your right. clients? Well, we'll but what we do is typically after you do that, that deep drill down and do diligence on, the, on what we would call the client or the business in this, is we put together a specification list, a, a breakdown, an outline of, of what we're looking for in coverage. And then we take those specifications to uh, a number of different insurance companies, both domestic writers as well as Lloyd's of London syndicates. And we ask for indications or quotes or, or some, some outline of what they're willing to provide in the way of coverage. And from that, we, we sort of cull down the, the possible players to the, say, three or so that are really um, offering what we think are the, the best starting terms, the best pricing. And then from there, that's when we pull out their, their policy contract and really start to, to manuscript coverage so that it's more meaningful if i've got a bunch of people so the carriers will let you change the language yeah well that, if you if <laughs> i would yeah okay, that's not easy <laughs> well that's why uh that's why i've teamed with paul is that he's yeah, an attorney yeah, he's and an attorney, right, right. And you're the tech guy uh, right so the dog uh, and pony show exactly so so i really needed somebody that could manuscript policy forms and and uh it was a, a it's it's a nice marriage so um so aig will change language there's, I would say, well, <laughs> I would say that we haven't had a policy that we've actually placed with a client that hasn't had at least two dozen different manuscripted changes to that policy. Would you say so, Paul? Well, I used to be at AIG. It was a technology media product manager, and what I did was draft a lot of the forms we're talking about, and especially in the media space. And um, 
so I know what we can and can't do or what AIG or can or cannot do. And one of the things that's really helpful is being able to understand what's fair. You know, it's yes. not a, you know, a lot of brokers, what I've noticed over the years being an underwriter is that they come in with these checklists that they've recycled over accounts, so they give it to the, you know, the next account uh, without even thinking if it really makes sense to ask for certain things. Sure. And it very, it very much so frustrates the underwriter because it's sort of like, this, is, this doesn't make any sense. Why are you asking for this? So what we try to do is actually uh, something that the underwriters approve of and actually appreciate, which is namely, we ask for certain changes that make sense for the exposures inherent to the particular client. So it's not about, here, give us these 20 changes. It's right. about, give us these seven changes we really care about right. that make a lot of sense. And here are a couple more that are you know, good for our client. Uh, so it's a much more proactive, quick process. Right. So, so Scott, be specific about some of the um, some of the major things that that everybody should make sure is in their insurance policy if they're going to get the security breach protection. Let's start with uh, laptops. Um, laptops uh, are covered in policies, and the policy says if, if there's a theft of a laptop, um, that this policy will respond. But you have to look at what's what are we calling theft? Right. Are we because of a, a you traditional put your laptop on the uh, you know when you're going through to get into the right. airport is that is that the right. same kind of theft when you put some it policies. well some that's policies what I was questioning you because know, be, a lot of those get lost when you put them on the conveyor belt right well that's a the, a typical policy language would be uh, theft out of uh, premises you own occupy and control well. I think that means that I've been stolen from my office, that I'm covered, but I'm really not worried about my office. I'm worried about the airport. Car. I'm worried about yeah. the car. I'm right. worried about the hotel. Um, so that, you know, that the kind train. of, those kind of things. You have to, you have to consider, you know, who are the possible, um, the, the, the possible claimants or uh, the some of the injured parties that might be involved in a, in a breach. Well, does that is that just my customers or is it possible that I could have employees that, that you know, for some reason or another, um, we lose some information. So now I have an employee suing the, com the company that they work for. The policy has to be structured to respond to that. Um, there also has to be, um, there are coverages for regulatory well, that has to be defined as to, you know, which regulators are we talking about? Which expenses are we talking about? Are we talking about just the expenses to comply to a to an investigation? Or are we talking about fines and penalties? Um, are there any limitations on that kind of coverage? Uh, also, civil liability. Um, are there any limitations on, on you know, the, the civil side at all, and and also to make sure that those those first party coverages that I mentioned before, the credit checking and the forensics and things like that, are robust enough that they're going to provide meaningful coverage. You know, if you're a very large organization, um, you want to have that coverage mean enough to you that that it's valuable. You know, if if it's just a uh, two hundred fifty thousand dollars worth of coverage, you know, that's not very meaningful. Mm -hmm. Other issues are about defense of that. If you have if you are to have one of these events, who controls the defense of that? Do, does the insured client choose their their attorneys, or does the insurance company determine their attorneys? Mm -hmm. um, are, is the insurance company going to pay for um, for the defense from the get-go, or are they going to reimburse me? Uh, these mm -hmm. are the, some of the some of just some of the issues that we that we get into. But um, I probably we don't have enough time to get into all the different right, issues. Right. Paul, would you want to add, add anything to that? It's for people to know what they specifically they should look for, because I know I, I have the AIG insurance myself. Cause Great I, company. I, I'm, yeah, no, they are. <laughs> no, I mean, I and I looked over the policy, and I, I actually had to fill out that really long application, and I'm a small business. So it was uh, it was kind of scary, you know, what, you know, asking you, um, what you have. Actually, I thought it was a very good checklist to find out, am I doing what I'm really supposed to be doing? Because I knew what they were trying to ask is if they should insure me or not. But there are a lot of great carriers out there, and that's, oh, that I'm was sure. my point. So there, there are a lot of them that are out there. They're asking different questions, and the only advice I could give is that find a suitable uh, risk management consulting firm, uh, suitable insurance broker, because if you don't get one, yeah, one thing I've learned, I've only been a broker for se several months now, um, but one thing I've learned is that you'll never find a broker saying, I don't know. 
because I've, I've been around the block in, on the underwriting side, and there's a lot of folks out there that, you know, are really, you know, want, want to help, um, but unfortunately, this type of coverage, this type of privacy coverage is very particularized. It's yes, very, it is. And it's newer, like you were saying. It's newer. So I would just go and, and find uh, a broker that has expertise. Don't try to go it alone. Um, because, like you said, you're not going to get any changes done. You're not going to get any manuscripting done. So it's just uh, a matter of, um, you know, choosing the right partner. Right. Now, so what is the difference between the security breach insurance and the identity theft insurance that they have? I know they have that at, at AIG. Yeah, there's three sort of tiers we're talking about here. Yes. Network security, sort of if you have a breach, you have a, a breach incident, so someone has actually affirmatively gone on to your website or has uh, let loose a malicious code. Uh, on a network. Right. Uh, another one is the privacy coverage, which is broader. So let's say there's dumpster diving that's covered or any sort of uh, non-network focused. And then the third thing, the ID theft w that you referenced, it would include first-party coverage, which basically means it's a reimburse you for the cost that you incur in terms of dealing with a breach. Right. And that would be something uh, that would reimburse you for call center costs, uh, for the notification letter, get counsel to help you with a notification letter, um, and anything that is directly attributable to the breach itself. Um, including legal counsel, which is a very costly yes. uh, thing in the initial stages. Uh, I just wanted to add to that. There's also that there is a, a separate uh, identity theft coverage that people can buy through their employers or some of their, their personal lines carriers or their credit card agency might offer Individuals well. you're talking about, but right. consumers buying and, identity theft and, insurance. And I, I'm a, you know, that does, having gone through the theft of a, a wallet um, and dealt with, the thirty thousand dollars of of expense that the this uh, the, the the thieves ran up and all yeah. the the trouble it took to clear up a um, a uh, credit uh, rating that's a lot of work so if you can possibly you know if you can buy those po those policies hopefully you buy them you never use them but if you ever have somebody steal your identity they can be very helpful in just uh, doing a lot of the heavy, heavy lifting around the theft of your own identity yeah you have to be very careful because a lot of those don't cover the things that you want right. either you know the, the $25 that you add to your homeowners insurance so yeah. you know there's there's some question about that some of them are better than others Paul, can you explain how insurance companies underwrite these policies? Sure. They generally uh, apply an application or provide an application that lists certain criteria that they're expecting that you to have, for example, a VPN or, you know, you're having antivirus software that's implemented. Sort of a very, very basic uh, questions with regards to network security. Do you have a privacy policy? Uh, does it get reviewed? How do you deal with contracts? Uh, they like to look at your contracts, for example, to see how you deal with vendors. They also want to see um, how you're housing your data. Do you outsource it? If you do outsource it, what's the name of that company? Because they generally know they if that's a good or out. bad company. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So some, some underwriters do a very lengthy process. They uh, actually have an interview, speak with uh, the either a CIO, CTO, somebody within security, and they really get a good feel for the company to see how well it's managing its data. And they're proactive. Some are more than others in terms of giving recommendations and how to fix things. So um, overall, I mean, I, I would venture a guess that pretty much all companies uh, or carriers underwrite uh, and ask similar questions. Some just drill down a lot more than others. So Scott, we don't have much more time. So what do you... What do you recommend to our people who are driving by as they're listening to this and they're starting to worry and think about risk management? What words of wisdom do you want to leave our group with? I think that uh, they should follow their instinct and, and that there, this is something to be concerned with. Worry is not as a productive process. I would say more of opening up the discussion and, and including this this in your overall risk management plan. The same way that you consider, you know, injuries to your employees, you should also consider how you manage data. And and just start to put together the building blocks of, of an effective uh, protection plan, an effective response plan for, again, God forbid you should have a breach. And and also to, to talk it up in the community. Reach out to the people that, that 
you are your advisors, whether that's your your insurance broker, your insurance consultants, your lawyers, your accountants. Everybody is is working on these issues. It's it's a topic of discussion in a lot of different organizations. So. Um, get out and talk with other people, find out what they're doing. Maybe your your industry or your industry association, if you have one, has, has dealt with this issue and has some information or some checklists or some things that you can consider. But but don't, just don't, there, there seems to be a, 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 a human response of, of sort of turning a blind eye to the things that make us uncomfortable. That's probably the worst thing you can do. Right. So, well, how about your website? Involved. Why don't you give us your website? Uh, the uh, Hillbrook Allen Hobbs website is hrh.com, um, and uh, if anybody has any information that they would would like or would like uh, you know us to include them, we do a, a newsletter every every month uh, dealing with media technology and privacy issues. So you know, they can sign up there for that. Uh, you can visit the HRH website or uh, Paul Perret and Scott Ernst. Just Paul. Dot Paray at hrh.com and scott.ernst at hrh.com. Just drop us an email and we'll put you on the list and we'd be more than happy to share whatever information we can. Great. Well, we also have that website on our website and we will put that information up there. And thank you so much for joining thank us. You. Thank, thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Visit our website, KUCI.org slash privacy piracy to see our upcoming guests and listen to archive interviews. Thank you very much. Good night. Stay private. Good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.